Hey, friends and fam, it's John, and it's time for the JMart cast for Monday, June 26th. What's going on? How are you? I had the episode on time for the first time in like four weeks. So, woohoo, yay to me, pat in the back to start it off. By the way, welcome to the JMart cast. This is my podcast where I talk about physical and financial health. If you're more interested in physical health, I do have another podcast called State of Health that I think you should check out. I've got a bunch of good episodes on there where I'm talking about all sorts of different topics related to health and fitness. I do a few episodes where I'm uh, speaking solo and then I have some guest episodes as well where I'm interviewing people. And one of the topics that I wanted to cover actually for my JMart podcast today is related to the most recent episode of State of Health where I interviewed this guy. He's got Crohn's disease and after having gone through a bunch of medications and then trying a vegan diet for five years for the last six months, he's finally had some success putting his Crohn's disease into remission by doing a carnivore diet. And so now I guess he's had some success with the diet and he's buying into it a little bit more. I saw that he posted something about fruit being really bad for your liver because of all the sugar that it contains. And when I saw this, I was like, okay, let me help set him straight, you know, because (laughs) I've done a podcast with him. Maybe if I approach it nicely, then he might be willing to listen. So then I just was like, you know, I don't think fruit is all that related to, I think he was talking about non-alcoholic liver disease. He was suggesting that fruit can be a major contributor to the development of, it's shortened to the acronym NAFLD, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So then he responded back with a couple links to some studies that, supposedly supported his viewpoint. And then when I opened these studies up and looked through them, very quickly I realized that, well, first of all, one of them was demonstrating that somebody who already has non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, if they have a large number of servings of fruit, I think it was four servings of fruit, and if you compare those people with a group of individuals who also have NAFLD but limit their fruit intake to zero, then the study said there are some markers, um, which I'm not familiar with how relevant these markers are. They were worse off for the group who had four servings of fruit. So it's like, yeah, okay, if you already got an issue with your liver, then maybe it might be helpful to limit your fruit intake. But The other study he provided was complete garbage study. The funny thing is, is this guy was um, a vegetarian for five years and he bought up all the propaganda against meat, right? Like meat causes cancer, meat is bad for you, uh, avoid it at all costs or else your health is going to deteriorate. And of course, all these studies, which he claims to have then, you know, visited and seen for himself that they're not real like it's the same type of study that put meat or connected meat to cancer is the same type of study that is used to connect fruit to 
uh, non-alcoholic liver disease, fatty liver disease, NAFLD. Like, so it's basically a bunch of people get given a questionnaire and they're asked how much meat or how much fruit did you consume in the past however amount of time. And then people fill out these surveys and they're also monitored, right? Their health is monitored. And for the meat studies, they try to associate with their people's responses with the rates of cancer people are experiencing. And in this fruit example, they're making a correlation between amounts of fruit consumption and the development of NAFLD. Now, first of all, I don't like these studies because you can't trust someone's answer to a questionnaire as a real data point for how much of that food group this person actually consumed. People's memories are horrible. And whatever you're answering to the questionnaire is going to be off by a certain percentage. And each person, each new person answering the questionnaire is going to be off by a different percentage. I just don't think this, this is a garbage in, garbage out kind of study or model. And second of all, you're only establishing a correlation. You're not actually showing that there's a causal link between the amount consumed and the outcome. And there could be a bunch of confounding factors that bias for this association to occur, but really there's no actual causal link. But anyway, the interesting thing is that this person's already gone through this one time where they got fooled by this kind of research into thinking that meat is bad and I shouldn't consume meat. And now they're kind of falling for the exact same trick with regards to fruit. So just, I don't know, I think if you get fooled by something the first time, then it's it's like that phrase, shame on you, but the fool me twice, shame on me, right? Like you, at some point you got to take responsibility for educating yourself and being able to read through like some of this research and be able to tell that this isn't actually supportive of the claim that it's making. So I can just put the study aside and not be worried about eating a few servings of fruit that it's going to cause me to have, you know, fat tissue surround my organ, my liver. Anyway, that's all the uh, health advice for this week. That's all I've got. Actually, before I move on to the Bitcoin update part of the show, something that recently got brought up to me that was like a little bit surprising to hear is how the percent of total deaths in Canada by medically assisted suicide, I guess it's called, um, is rising and I thought I heard someone say it's as high as like 10% in Quebec, which seemed really high to me. And I was like, that it can't be that high. It shouldn't be. So I didn't, I looked up, I just did a quick little search, assisted suicide Quebec. And I found, here's what I found. There's this BMJ article, British Medical Journal. It's titled, Assisted Deaths. Quebec passes Netherlands to lead world in number per capita. So this is published on December 16th, 2022. And I can't read the whole thing because I need to pay for it, but you can read a part of it. 
Here's where you can read. It says, Quebec is now the jurisdiction with the highest proportion of people choosing medical assistance in dying made, says Michel Bureau, president of the province's commission on end-of-life care. In Quebec, 5.1% of deaths result from made. 5.1. So originally I thought someone told me 10%, which I was a little concerned about, and then This article from about six months ago, seven months ago, says it was at 5.1%, so half of what I thought. Pretty high still. So anyway, Quebec is at 5.1%. In Netherlands, it's 4.8% of deaths, and in Belgium, it's 2.3%. Rates have also been steadily rising in the rest of Canada, reaching 3.3% of all deaths in 2021. Quebec operates under its own made law passed in June 2016. Asked whether the rising numbers were a sign of loosening criteria or inappropriate deaths, Bureau, a physician, said, not at all. The Quebecois who receive made are at the end of their lives. They have suffering that cannot be eased and meet all the criteria. Well, of course he would say that, right? Like, if he doesn't, if it's not what's actually happening, then uh, would he actually admit to it? Right? He wouldn't say that. Like, <laughs> but 5.1 seems like a lot to me. Of all deaths, I don't know. He'd have to go through each case one by one and be like, yeah, sure, but not the job for me. It is concerning that it's steadily rising. Anyway, take that and do with it what you will. I'm just, I don't know, concerned. All right, let's do our Bitcoin update. Bitcoin is sitting on block height 795,952. One Bitcoin is trading at 30,198 US dollars. With one US dollar, you can buy 3,312 sats. Sats are like the Bitcoin equivalent of cents, except Bitcoin doesn't subdivide 100 times, it subdivides 100 million times. So you got dollars and cents and Bitcoin and sats. <laughs> and here's your reminder that you can support the podcast with sats if you're listening to it with a podcasting 2.0 app such as Fountain, Breeze, or Podverse. With these awesome podcast apps, you can listen to something and also for every minute listened, send some sats or Bitcoin back to the person, the podcaster, who has it enabled anyway. So yeah, download one of those podcast apps, Fountain, Breeze, Podverse, Load up some Bitcoin on there. If you don't have any Bitcoin, I'm offering to send you some (laughs) so you can test it out, see how well it works. Just message me. You can reach me at jmartfit at substack.com or reach out to me on social media at jmartfit on Instagram and Twitter. All right. So we talked a little bit about physical health. Fruit is good. Don't be scared of fruit. It's not going to make your liver fatty. Now let's talk about financial health. 
If we're speaking financial health, then I'm always going to say insure against the fiat collapse by getting some Bitcoin. And today I want to share a few bits and pieces from this um, report, I guess you could call it, which is called How to Position for the Bitcoin Boom. If you just Google search how to position for the Bitcoin boom, it'll pop up and you have to give up your email to get this <laughs> report. It's on Unchained.com. Unchained is a Bitcoin company and it says Unchained has partnered with Tour de Meester and Adamant Research to publish the latest report about the state of Bitcoin in the second quarter of 2023. This report continues Tour's long line of Bitcoin bear market reports dating back to 2012. So, I'm just going to read a couple of small sections from this report. The first part I'm going to read is from a section titled, As an Investor, Why Do I Care About Bitcoin? And so it's got a few bullet points here for what's going on in terms of the macroeconomic landscape and reasons why you should care about Bitcoin. So bullet point number one, the U.S. money supply increased by 25% or $7 trillion since the pandemic. Since 2020, the minimum reserve requirements for U.S. banks is 0%. (laughs) So if you put money in the bank, they don't have to keep it there. They can just take it out, all of it, and they can just tell you that your money's in there, but none of it's there, not even like a small percent reserve. Next bullet point is 186 U.S. banks face collective unrealized losses of $1.7 to $2 trillion. T, trillion with a T. (laughs) It used to be like everything was like billions, but now we're moving on to trillions, kind of ridiculous. Next, if the $10 trillion in outstanding U.S. deposits suffered a bank run, FDIC's own reserves could only cover 1.26% of that. <laughs> All right, so you can tell this is very U.S.-centric, right? Because FDIC is about the U.S. So there's about $10 trillion worth of dollars that people have deposited in banks, and only 1.26% of that is covered by FDIC. Uh oh. <laughs> I guess if there's a bank run, you better hope you're one of the first people. <laughs> what else? Government debt in the G7, the most economically advanced nations in the world, is the highest since World War II at 128% of GDP. <laughs> oh man, it's like imagine if every week you made a hundred bucks but your weekly payments were $128. How are you going to pay that off? How? You're going to take out another loan. That's how. And then uh, it says, additionally, aspects of the monetary system strike many as antiquated, such as 1.4 billion people globally who still don't have access to a bank account or sending money to relatives abroad costs around 6% of the full amount, right? If you're making a remittance, whoever's helping you make that transaction, they keep as much as 6%. How is that fair? 
And then even though money's digital, banks still can't settle a transaction on a Sunday. <laughs> right. So there you go. That's your list of reasons why as an investor, you should care about Bitcoin. Because all this crazy ah, can't speak. macroeconomic stuff is going on. Money is so inefficient that in order to make a transaction happen across borders, someone takes about a 6% fee for doing it, for helping you do it. I think we can all agree it really shouldn't be that high. That's just so outrageous. And then, all right, the other section before I finish the podcast that I wanted to read is from a part that's titled, Could Bitcoin See a Legal Crackdown? This is always like the number one thing people say, right? Like, oh, the U.S. is going to ban it and then boom, it's going to go to zero. Like that's the number one thing people say. So here's what this report says. An outright ban seems unlikely to happen in the U.S. for three reasons. First, adoption is already quite widespread, likely similar to Internet adoption in the year 1995, which means it would anger a substantial voter base. Second, a prohibition of Bitcoin ownership would be fought in the courts because it violates basic constitutional liberties. Thirdly, such a ban would be very hard to enforce, leading to a Streisandian embarrassment most governments are keen to avoid. Yeah, you can't really ban Bitcoin. All you can really do is ban yourself from Bitcoin. So if governments, especially the US, tries to ban it and then looks really dumb doing it like the U not the US, the Chinese government has done. So like they've banned Bitcoin so many times where they haven't haven't like unbanded in between each time they've banned it, but like basically each time they've banned it, it's shown how resilient it is and how you can't actually stop it. You can't stop people from using it. So it would be embarrassing for the US government, just as embarrassing if they tried to ban it and were equally unsuccessful. Now, the second point made in this report about constitutional rights being violated, that I think is a weaker point as clearly from what we learned to the response to the COVID pandemic, constitutional rights aren't really a real thing. That's just in our imagination. And sometimes we have them, but sometimes we don't. We can't really guarantee that at all times. I think the first point is much stronger. The fact that there's already a decent amount of user base and uh, lots of people would be upset uh, if it was banned. And in fact, certain jurisdictions, specifically certain states, would simply not agree with the federal ban, just like how in the states, marijuana is still federally banned, but many uh, individual states have legalized laws about the use of it. I think the same situation would happen with regards to Bitcoin. If there's a federal ban on it, there are many individual states that are profiting from having Bitcoin companies in those jurisdictions paying taxes. So they would not want to lose that revenue by going along with a federal ban. All right. I think I've reached the end of the podcast. Thank you all for listening to the end. Love you all. Have a great day. Have a great week. Stay active. Be grateful. Jamer it out.